Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 37. This episode is sponsored by DeGreiter and his portfolio in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. For students and researchers in mathematics, DeGreiter's 2022 catalog is now available at thisacademiclife.org. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I am a professor of physics and associate dean of research. Hi, my name is Pania Newell. I'm an assistant professor in mechanical engineering. Hi, my name is Lucy Zhang. I'm a professor of mechanical engineering. If you're a researcher who has worked hard on your research project, whether you're an undergraduate student, graduate student, or a faculty, now you have results to share with others. It's time to get into one of your academic conferences to showcase what you've got. Today, we're going to talk about academic conferences, why you should go, what you need to do to prepare, and what are the do's and don'ts when you get there. In an academic conference, it's typically a one-day or multiple-day event during which researchers present their work to each other. Conferences are an important way researchers stay connected to others in their field and learn about cutting-edge scholarship. In terms of format, typically they evolve oral presentations and sometimes they also have poster presentations. Professors, researchers, students are all invited to present their research. So I thought maybe the first thing that we can talk about is why should someone go to these academic conferences? Yes, so typically all academic researchers and professors should attend the conferences. I know that some have the philosophy when you're much younger in your career, you tend to go to these conferences more often so that you can establish collaborations, you can get letters of recommendations for your tenure cases, etc. And then there's a natural progression that as you continue on in your career, you go from being just a participant attending the conference to becoming an organizer or even so becoming an invited speaker or guest. So typically I think it's encouraged for all scholars to attend these academic conferences. Even graduate students and undergraduate students are also encouraged very early on in their career to get practice going to these conferences. And also, I think that we are all obligated to share our knowledge and discoveries. All of these are happening through grants that they are coming from some federal agencies or taxpayer monies. I think we must to go to these conferences and share what we have found. So what do these academic conferences typically offer? If someone had never been there before, should they just prepare for a talk or there are other type of activities or events that they can look out for? So for me, I always kind of put things in bins and you'll always hear me want to 
answer these questions based on where you are in your career, if you're pre-tenure, post-tenure, or you're more senior faculty member. So the as a result of the wide range of academic scholars that attend the conferences, the conferences typically have a large range of activities that catch the attention of all of these scholars. So there could be focus workshops, there could be even writing workshops, there could be professional development workshops. Then there's also a large variety of academic talks on specific topics related to the conference itself. So if it's a material science conference, then a lot of the discussions will be about research related to material science in general. Then there's also cases where there are activities that are just meet and greets, where you go into socializing rooms, where you meet people from different universities or uh, different countries even. So sometimes that's also used to get collaborations. And it's also just to, sometimes I feel like it's the social events are used as icebreakers because, you know, most often scientists and engineers are known as people who are awkward and don't have the social skills. So sometimes it's fun to go to these events and you socialize, you talk about things that sometimes are research related or sometimes not. So there's a large variety of things. And then there's also job opportunities. Sometimes they even have a session just on they're looking for postdoctoral researchers or they're looking for assistant professors. There's also vendor shows. So if you're an experimentalist or if you're a computational scientist, sometimes vendors show up and then you can talk to vendors. I wanted to uh, emphasize what Kim had just said, those job opportunities at these conferences. I know the ones at APS, the American Physical Society, they have a huge board a job posting board uh, ranging from entry level academic jobs all the way to postdoctoral, even graduate research assistance jobs. There are a huge variety of postings. They even have sessions talking about these where the you know, potential advisor or labs who are looking for people, uh, they would go and then basically host a employer session. So those are really great opportunities to kind of get yourself out there and nothing beats in-person greet and meet your potential employer. I also want to mention that some of these conferences, you can meet with publishers and there would be opportunity to write a proposal and then publish a book with them or just become an editor. So these opportunities also, they exist at conferences. Another opportunity that exists at these conferences is the ability to be able to meet with program managers. Oftentimes, you're interested in applying to a particular program at NSF or DOD or Army Research Lab. And one of the major challenges is getting to know the program manager and what opportunities exist in their directorate, for example. So oftentimes, it's much easier, instead of trying to contact them by email or by phone, is to just find out if they're gonna be at the conference. And then most often, because it's a very informal setting, 
you're more likely to gain an opportunity to meet with them one-on-one over lunch or dinner or just between talks. So that's also a great opportunity and a good networking strategy for uh, faculty members. That's fantastic. So the next logistical question, how do one pay for these conferences? I mean, they cost money, right? So there's registration fee, there's travel cost. So where do you find the money to do that? Well, so I guess for faculty, it's easy if they already have a grant and their research is associated with their grant. So they must have already budgeted for traveling to these conferences so they can cover the cost. For junior faculty, they, I guess the only uh, way they can attend is just using their startup money. And for the students, graduate and undergraduate, there are various options to cover the cost. The best one is just reaching out to the uh, the PI or the advisor that you are working in the lab with and then ask if they are willing to sponsor you to attend the conference and present your work. Also, universities on campuses, there are limited amount of resources for traveling, for presenting your research at these conferences. For instance, in my institute, every graduate student, they can apply for those fellowships only once per their graduate degrees. Undergraduate also there have resources that they can apply for. Also some of these conferences, they offer fellowships and travel awards. Some of these conferences, they have scholarship and travel awards that student they can apply for. So there are different ways to cover the cost depending on what stage in your career you are in. Some large conferences, I know that, for example, American Geophysical Union, they have a scholarship that they are for people that neither their advisor or institute, they can support them to attend conferences. So they are coming from countries that they don't have these means. So they provide fellowships for them to to travel to come to the conference. Another place you can receive travel funding is, wait for it, the dean of your college. (laughs) So sometimes the college would offer some type of travel allowances, especially for junior faculty. So I think it's, that's always like the first go-to place for most uh, faculty members. I would say there's a chain of command. So I would say go to the department chair first, because usually the dean of the college, depending on how how your org chart is set up or how the funds are distributed, usually those type of funds are given directly to the department and is at the discretion of the department chair to decide if he's going to use that for travel funds for X, Y, and Z faculty members. And then that department chair may tell you to go talk to the dean if he or she does not have or was not allocated travel funds for that particular fiscal year. Another place is sometimes the provost office have uh, programs that assist junior faculty members, especially very early on in their careers. So that's another place that you can often go. Another place you can also go is the graduate school. If your university has its own graduate school, then sometimes the graduate students even go there for funding for travel. And sometimes faculty members also go there to get travel allowances too. So these are sort of like, I wouldn't say they're secrets, but it's sort of those places that faculty members and graduate students wouldn't necessarily look. I know that when I was at RPI, 
there was an undergraduate research office that also gave funding to undergraduate students to attend conferences. So it's always nice to start at home first, meaning your, your own academic institution before you go outside. And I think those are the best places to get started. I wanted to echo the asking the dean <laughs> because I, it made a huge difference in my life, in my career. This is when I was mid-career, my grants ran out, I didn't have startup funds anymore, but I would like to establish a new collaboration by visiting this collaborator, but I had no money. They weren't going to pay me because we didn't have joint or established projects yet. And I was completely hopeless. I didn't know where to go. I happened to have this conversation at the time with uh, my associate dean of research in my school. And she said, oh, why didn't you just ask? I'm like, oh, you can ask for that kind of thing? And she ended up paying. I didn't ask for much. I think the whole trip, the entire trip probably cost a, less than, a little less than $1,000. But it made a huge difference because after the trip, my relationship with the potential collaborator became realized. And that gave me all the future travel funds that I needed. Right. And all these collaborations and projects that we eventually ended up all solidifying. So it was a life saving request at the time for me to ask the dean. And I'm really glad that the dean approached me first and said, do you need anything? Do you need any help? And I said, that's what I needed. And then she gave it to me and I was I'm forever grateful. I'll never forget. And also sometimes VPR offices, they are having additional funds for sponsoring faculty, and I don't know about the students, but sponsoring faculty for sure, to even go meet with program managers or attend conferences, anything that would facilitate their success and help them to become successful, write proposals and establish new collaborations, I guess. Yeah, so there are all these hidden resources that we just need to ask. And sometimes we don't even know they exist, like in your case that you didn't know. All right. So assume that we now have means to find the funds to go to these conferences. Now, what does one need to do for the preparation? So, for example, you know, at what point do they need to think about sending in or drafting in an abstract and how do they prepare? prepare months, months, months in advance, because all of these happen in regular times, right? So probably faculty, they know the time that APS is happening or ACS conferences are happening or AGU or whatever uh, other conferences, but don't wait for the last minute to submit. For me, I remember, especially for APS, American Physical Society, as soon as the 
abstract booklet came out online. I was studying the booklet. I was trying to see who was going to give a talk. I was trying to already contact them by email to say, can I meet with you at 1230 in the lobby of this hotel? I was so rigid in terms of how I structured my day because it's sort of like an opportunity. You pay thousands of dollars to stay in this hotel for one week. The conference fee is $800 plus food, travel, all of that stuff. So every waking minute I had something scheduled and I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss any important talks, especially if they were concerning my area of expertise. And I wanted to make sure I get to the big, the big lectures, right? That those big invited talks, I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss anything. And then I remember when I was in grad school, my academic advisor would always say, try to pick one or two oddball talks. That's what he called it, which means it was an oddball talk was a talk that just was weird. It was like, what, 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 how did this even make it into the booklet? And actually it was so interesting because what we did for one of my talks is we made it an oddball talk by giving it this like quirky name, right? And a ton of people showed up. (laughs) It was so funny because they came because it was like, what is she going to talk about? What is she talking about? And guess what? I met one of my collaborators at NIST and he encouraged me to do a patent on the talk, on the device that I talked about in that talk. And he is the reason I have a U.S. patent because I and my advisor named my talk some oddball, weird talk. A ton of people showed up, gave me all of this great feedback, and I got a U.S. patent out of it. So that was like worth it. So now every time I go, I think about that experience and I always pick one or two oddball talks that I have no idea what they're going to talk about. But it's just weird that this talk is in this booklet. And so I go. So that's my little story about that. But yes, so plan your time well at the conference. (laughs) So how does one prepare for the, assume they're giving an oral presentation or a poster presentation? What do they need to pay attention to? That one is hard. It, I stressed out so much, even when as a faculty member, when I gave these talks, things you need to be prepared for is who you think will be in the audience. You need to prepare for the abstracts that are presented before and after you, because most often, sometimes they overlap so closely, or people will ask a question that should have been for the previous person, but because it's closely related and that time ran out, they'll ask you, right? Like, dude, I'm not talking about that. That was a I was the previous person. But so you you sort of have to just be prepared for everything, all types of questions. And for me, what eased my anxiety in the preparation is, you know, reading the abstracts, you know, who were going to be in my session, right? So that was one thing. And then catching up on what were their recent publications. So that was one way that I would prepare for questions. Then Although I was so nervous, I would still attend the whole session. 
because most often when you sit through the whole session, you have an idea of who's in the audience. And then I would take notes. There's always this one person in the audience that asks the same question to every single person. So it also gives you an opportunity to be prepared for that person to ask that question. And also one of the things that I did for preparation is that I practice with all my friends. So I would make sure that because it's just a 10, sometimes it's just a 10 minute talk. Lucy will listen to me for 10 minutes, but she won't listen to me do a 60 minute talk. So the more practice that I got with going through the slides over and over again was also very helpful. And I also found that being on time. So they gave you eight minutes of talk and two minutes of question. It is very important that you end in eight minutes. I didn't realize why my advisor was so rigid with me when he was like, you have to stop like eight minutes. You have to stop mid sentence. You need to stop. It sort of kind of made sure that people understood that you respected their time and that questions needed to be asked. So I would sometimes get to the point where I was so rigid and making sure that I ended exactly in eight minutes and made sure that my slides were so to the point and exact, even that if I fumbled, people would notice it because my slide was so short. If I misspoke or said, you know, they're, they're looking at my slide. And so they're like, oh, okay, she meant this. This is actually negative two votes and not what she said because sometimes you get nervous so you always want to be prepared to have your slides speak for themselves in case you have anxiety issues or you misspeak or you use it as backup slides if someone asks you a question so I prepare it a lot and I prepare my students a lot I think they hate to go to conferences with me because the night before we're in the hotel lobby we're going through the conference we're going through the 10-minute talk I'm drilling them. I'm asking them questions. I'm like, turn around and now do the talk again. Don't look at the slide. It's just, you're just trying to build that, that character and that stamina, all of that stuff with the students as well and for yourself. Yeah. I, I think that it's so important that everybody, it, regardless of their career stage, they need to practice. And these dry runs are so important. So I agree with Kim. Some conferences actually gave out those timers, countdown timers. I really like them because that would allow people to, in general, be respectful of other people's time. If one person were to go to another session that started another time, they won't be worried about missing another talk that they're interested in. So I really like those timers. I'm really hoping that all the presenters respect those timers. Even if there is no timer, they really should practice and everybody should practice so that they can complete their talk within their allotted time. I have no qualm as a session chair. Sometimes I have no qualm stopping people in right in the middle when their time is up, but not all the session chairs do that. I've received so many emails, I wouldn't say recently, but the, over the years, the number of conferences, uh, those advertisement of conferences had increased dramatically over the last few years. And I don't know if you noticed that as well. And if there are multiple conferences that, that fit your needs, how do you choose? Especially for junior faculty or for say students, they don't know where to go. What factor do you use to choose? So for me, I choose 
one, wherever my advisor would go. And then I also choose where I know the top people in my field would go. So that's how I would choose. So if it's the Gordon Conference, then I will go there. Sometimes I will go to the website of the top people in my field and find out what previous conferences they're going to. Sometimes I even would just send them a quick email and say, hey, just reaching out, wanting to know if you're going to the Gordon Conference this year or are you skipping out? Then sometimes they would just say, oh, hey, Kim, how's it going? I'm actually going to go to MRS this year and I'm going to skip Gordon. Sometimes they'll volunteer even more information. Well, here's the reason why, because so-and-so is getting a big award, blah, blah, blah. So you're like, oh, okay. So then you know that most people in that field are going to be going to that conference. So sometimes I would just reach out, kind of move with the crowd, so to speak. For me, I look at the location too. Like sometimes I cannot afford to go to international conferences. So I need to look at the one that they are available nationally. And also for me lately, it's important to see how the organizers of the conference, they are treating the participants meaning everybody is being treated equally. There are, for example, some recently, some conferences, they provide opportunities for childcare. And to me, that's important. They provide opportunities for the student participations and undergraduate and graduates, and they have different various awards. So for me, it's like how they are looking at the entire community in a very just manner. So those things are now are important for me to select which conferences I, I want to go besides making sure that it's technically relevant too. All right, that goes to my last question. We have gone through COVID for two years now. And we've gone through a lot of these virtual conferences. And now in person conferences are coming back. I wanted to see your thoughts on what are the major differences? Which one do you prefer to go? And how do you take advantage of either? No more virtual conferences for me. I hated them. I'm sorry. <laughs> I did not get anything out of those virtual conferences. So I want in-person conference with full mask, everything, but all restrictions for the COVID policies and vaccinations, everything over virtual conferences. I think I would prefer in person as well, because I've seen some virtual conferences that were done really well. And those that were done really well spent a lot of money on their platform, what platform they use, where they had whiteboards and there were interactive things and it was virtual happy hours and they sent us Uber Eats cards. Like one conference, virtual conference I went to because they wanted to simulate um, you taking breaks and things like that, they sent us Uber Eats cards. And so like for our lunch hour, people, we would just order Uber Eats and it was fun. And another conference, they sent us like gift, like a snack pack. And it was like this box with all of these snacks in it, like the same snacks we would get at the conference. You know how they'll have like chips and this and that. And it was like this box full of like cookies and sugar daddies and uh, just all of this junk food and it was great and then for the virtual happy hour one conference I attended they sent us these beautiful glasses 
so that for a virtual happy hour, we can pour air quotes, anything into our virtual glass. I'm sorry, glass wasn't virtual, right? But in, into our virtual happy hour. And it was fun. And so I kind of thought it was for those conferences that really put some thought into the experience, I really appreciate it. I didn't mind staying at home and with my snack pack and my glass and my Uber Eats cards. I didn't mind it. And one conference gave us earbuds. You know, they gave us a cell phone holder. So I, I enjoyed that. Also, I have to say, I like receiving gifts. So that, that, that helped. So, so I felt like the gifts were just all about me. So I think some of the virtual conferences I went to was actually done really well. So I'm not torn, but I think I'm going to miss some of the virtual conferences. Other ones I'm, I prefer to go into, I'm like Pine, I would prefer to go to in person because they didn't put any thought into it. It was just like talk after talk, after talk, after talk, after talk, after talk. It was just really overwhelming to sit in front of the in front of Zoom or whatever platform they were using for several hours. Panya, we've gone to the wrong conferences. I was going to say the same thing. We are in wrong (laughs) community. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights and experiences regarding participating academic conferences. We hope that you're convinced that participation in academic conferences will give you the energy and networking opportunities that you will benefit for a long time to come. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. This episode is sponsored by DeGreiter and its portfolio in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. For students and researchers in mathematics, DeGreiter's 2022 catalog is now available at thisacademiclife.org. You can follow us on Facebook and listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life. To our listeners, we will take a short summer break from this Academic Life podcast, and we will resume in fall 2022.